Right, exactly. I mean, that's like what it's all about. It's just a, it's a common refrain that it's just always like everything that you do that we don't like hurts the economy, but everything that we do helps the economy. You know, it's sort of like couching it in that. Like we know, yeah. we know all the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not a, like a, I'm not an expert here, but I assume that mass mass deaths from COVID will indeed also hurt the economy. <laughs> Good morning, comrades. You're listening to Good Morning Comrade, goodmorningcomrade.com. Today on the show, we got Jeff and we have a very special guest, Ryan Kakaris. Is that correct? Am I saying it correctly? Uh, close enough. It's Kakaris. It's you know, a weird Greek last name, but yeah, uh, it's close enough. There you go, Greek. And I guess you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Ryan Kakaris. I am a union organizer. I work for the Painters Union. Yeah. Um, I've been with them for about a decade now, um, doing you know a lot of different roles, but primarily as an organizer. Uh, and I'm also a member of Baltimore DSA. There you go. And uh, you know, we, just kind of like jumping on the discussion we're about to have, the Painters Union has pretty good politics, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I like to think that um, among the building trades, particularly, like we we kind of represent like the left flank. Um, I think we've really taken like pretty bold stands around organizing like um, undocumented workers um, and all yeah. other stuff too. But I, I think typically, yeah, we, we like to think of ourselves as being a little more progressive than like some of our other uh, sisters and brothers and in, in the building trades. Yeah. And you know, uh, we talked a little bit about our friend, our mutual friend, Chip. Uh, he was there to show up at our last sort of like board meeting when we were like fighting. It was, it was him and the, the, the president of the AFL-CIO. He's a painters guy. Uh, well, uh, Chip is. And, and it was like really awesome to see that, you know, people like that with with other workers out there showing solidarity uh, to keep those schools like safe and closed. Yeah, I mean, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but, you know, similar to the UE, I think we tend to punch above our weight. I mean, we're not one of the bigger building trades unions. Uh, we have about 100,000 active members, mm. uh, closer to like 150 if you include all of our retired members. But um, people like Chip, you know, like he, he doesn't represent a huge uh, district council mm-hmm. for us, but you know, they're aggressive, like ship fights. Um, I think he, he certainly like means well. And like, despite kind of our limited resources, we, we like to show up and like help, you know, our sisters and brothers out in the movement. You do the best with what you got, you know, and I appreciate that. So we, I want to talk to you because you wrote an article uh, in the organizer, dsaorganizer.org. Uh, it was kind of a response to an article in Jacobin by Jeff Shirk. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Um, on UE's unionism and also to some um, some things that are happening within DSA. Can you sort of describe uh, what's going on with, I guess, specifically to start us off with this uh, emergency workers organizing uh, committee? Yeah, so like I, I got kind of inspired to write this because of Jeff's article. Um, I don't like disagree with it per se. Sure. Um, I think like it's right, um, like in context. So I, I kind of wanted to like outline like what the UE's kind of gone through and like kind of some stuff they're doing now and like why I think that's important. And can you just lay um, out, can you just lay out for the folks who haven't read uh, this article or yours yet, uh, who is UE and, and what are some of the things about UE that we can sort of get into? 
Yeah, I mean, UE is noteworthy, I think, because they are, they are like, one of the last, like, really militant industrial unions that have survived since, like, the 1930s. Um, they were organized initially in 1936. Um, they, UE stands for United Electric Radio and Machine Workers of mm-hmm. America. Um, they were kind of organized around, like, in the vein of, like, early CIO unions to organize, like, like factory workers primarily that, mm-hmm. that obviously, like, built, like, you know, electrical and like radio, um, and like, like commercial machines. Um, and you know, they, they grew real quick. Like they went from, from nothing in 1936 to having like almost 600,000 members by the end of world war two. And since world war two, now they're down to like, uh, what roughly like 30,000 members now, which is like, I think I pointed out in the article, they're like half the size of DSA. Right. Um, and and, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say that's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, you know, they were one of the few unions who, after World War II, um, when Taft-Hartley was passed, who refused to kind of um, turn over their like socialists and communists and anarchist members. They refused to sign the um, what they called like the anti-communist affidavits, mm-hmm. um, and because of that, um, and then not only because of that for other reasons too, but because of that, other unions um, in the CIA, oh, like including like the UAW. Um, steel workers, um, they basically saw it as an opportunity and they basically started raiding um, the UE and it was aggressive. And because the UE refused to sign those affidavits, um, they couldn't appear on NLRB ballots. So if like if the union was decertified or if it got up to a vote, um, you only have one union available to vote for. So naturally, you know, the UAW or whoever would win those votes. Um and then it killed the UE. Um, right. I mean, I think eventually they did actually reverse and sign the non-communist affidavits, um, but it didn't really matter. Um, the CIO chartered a rival union, which is called the IUE, mm-hmm. um, and they, they actually still exist. They are now a um, they are now the industrial branch of CWA, um, but the IUE was created. Um, and they even structured the name to sound similar to the UE, but it's the International Union of Electric, Radio, and Machine Workers. Mm-hmm. And they still exist, and they were chartered specifically to kind of siphon members and resources away from the UE. Mm-hmm. UE essentially was, uh, like, like you said before, a powerful union in the past, but uh, you know, despite the fact that all these structural you know, rules uh, with the NLRB and the uh, the the raid from IUE and, and all the other things uh, led to uh, led to the union being essentially picked apart. And despite the fact that they have good positions and, and sort of like outlooks, it doesn't make up for having the resources that go along with having a large membership base. Yeah. And I think like, um, you know, I try to get in the piece too, is that, you know, nowadays, like the industries they were formed to organize are, are largely gone or they're, uh, they've been relocated to the U.S. South, you know, basically the same story that every manufacturing and heavy industry union is facing. Um, and UE's kind of branched out a little bit. I mean, they had a bunch of mergers uh, over the past couple of years. Like, they, they merged with a big, like, public employee and police union out of, like, Connecticut back in 2005, which got them a, a pretty big influx of members. Mm-hmm. Um they did a couple, like, public sector drives in, like, kind of the mid-Atlantic and the upper south. Um, in states like Virginia and North Carolina. Um, but I think like a, a newer thing they're trying, and you know, it, it is pretty new and it's, it's unique, I think, among uh, the labor movement, is that um, they're working with DSA on the Ewok project. Um, and so, 
EWOC is um, the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. Um, this kind of came about through uh, DSA's like internal uh, COVID task force. Um, and, you know, the, the intent of this project really is to kind of take some of the models that the Bernie Sanders campaign used along like distributed organizing lines and apply that to essentially what is like organizing hot shops um, in the midst of the pandemic. Right. Um, and, and DSA is partnered with the UE here where the UE is providing like resources and kind of their expertise um, along with DSA's kind of like uh, volunteer base and membership base um, to, to kind of coincide. And, you know, I think it's like a, it's a, a worthwhile project. I mean, it, it's pretty new. Um, there, there's been, you know, some concerns over the oversight of the project and kind of like internal stuff, but largely I think this is like an effort that both DSA and the UE need to do. I mean, I think the labor movement at large needs to kind of figure out how you organize um, like in response to a mass like event like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you saw that back in the thirties with some of the, um, like the, the unorganized or the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the unemployed councils during the great depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, th- this is kind of in the similar vein. So it's, it's an interesting partnership. Um, and I think it's, it's a, a unique turn for UE who, who don't have a lot of experience organizing these sorts of workers. I mean, my, my guess is that the majority of, um, the contacts and then the, the hot shops that come out of Ewok are not going to be what we, you would traditionally consider one of UE's like industries. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I guess on a similar point, is this something that like, uh, is this something that could potentially like revitalize UE? Is this a, uh, like a worthy, a worthwhile project for DSA? Maybe, maybe the, you, maybe that's a complicated question. Um, but sort of like like what in terms of this emergency workers project, what is the, what are the sort of opportunities that you see and what are some potential kind of drawbacks? Yeah, I mean, I don't like realistically, I don't see this as like something that's going to lead to UE being like, quote, revitalized. I mean, I think that I think that would take something much larger. Um, I mean, I, I've been I kind of laid down the piece that I think most the labor movement right now is kind of stuck in this like gridlock. Um, where I, I think labor law and, and like the conditions we're organizing under right now are so punitive and so like kind of, you know, um, suffocating that it's hard for any union to organize like in mass enough to where we're going to regain, you know, the last like a hundred years of, of kind of the union decline. Um, so I don't think Ewok is going to necessarily lead UE to like the promised land, but I do think that, you know, I think it's certainly worthwhile. And I think that, they have to move in some direction like this in order to, to stay relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot of unions that, that suffer from this too, but I think a lot of UE's kind of core membership are like legacy CBAs from, you know, times when it was easier to organize. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, you're basically swimming as the current with a lot of these, these bargaining units. Um, I kind of laid out the piece. I mean, there was, you know, a pretty famous, um, you know, kind of like UE strike was back in 2008. Uh, I think it was right before Obama got elected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right, maybe right as he got elected. Um, Republic Windows and Doors in Chicago um, was a factory that basically they, they gave their workers like a couple days notice that they were closing uh, and were refusing to pay out any of their benefits, which was, you know, a violation of a couple federal laws there. Um, 
UE kind of responded by organizing a sit-down strike, which is also in itself uh, quasi-illegal. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, the the story is kind of a familiar one to a lot of the labor movement where the 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 strike ended up, you know, getting them some of their benefits paid back. I mean, they, they did win, like, you know, a lot of money, but it didn't really – it didn't stop the plant closing. Um, the plant kind of reopened here and there over the years. I mean, and now – it's down to 17 people who work as a cooperative, which again, like, you know, I love cooperatives, right? I think that in general, the economy needs to move in that direction, but you know, you kind of see the writing on the wall here. These factories are um, going out of business. They're moving, they're, they're relocating to the South um, and they're shrinking. Yeah. Um, 17 is so not I, a significant number, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, you know, they had, a, I think approximately 240 workers in 2008 mm-hmm. and now they have 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's kind of like a that's kind of a great example of, of most manufacturing based unions here, even like, you know, you see the UAW who are organizing a lot of like grad students. Right. I mean, they, yeah. they understand, you know, the UAW can't win a campaign in the South to for anything. Right. Um, part of that is their fault. And I think part of the UE's decline could certainly have been like, you know, um, slowed maybe. But I think largely they're they're working under circumstances and none of us can control um so right. you know I, I think ewok is certainly like a good step in the right direction and i think mm-hmm. that unions in general have to look at like new methods of organizing and i think from dsa's point of view i mean it's absolutely a good thing i i'm very much in favor of dsa partnering with um with unions to do organizing and to to do you know all sorts of work mm-hmm. um so i think it's a win-win but yeah i mean i, I think like you're going to need like a basically a seismic shift in um, the train to really see like masses of people joining and forming labor unions like we saw in like the you know the late 30s yeah i want to pick on that a little bit actually so like what could like further partnership of of groups like dsa which we're both members of uh what could that kind of a partnership look like what and, and um we've talked about this part in the past as well there's a significant number of union members in dsa what kind of support could we provide for them as they just sort of operate in their union? Yeah. I mean, I think like, I think almost all organizing happens at the local level. Like Mm -hmm. I work for an international, um, and that comes with, it's like a lot of challenges. Right. But I don't like international unions don't organize workers. They like my, my job really more is to facilitate our district councils. Right. Like their organizing campaign. So I think similarly with DSA, you know, the, the partnership and the potential comes from like, uh, like in New Orleans, like New Orleans DSA, like their DSLC building out structures, like mapping out where DSA members work, what unions they're in, figuring out, you know, cause not every union is going to want to work with DSA, um, you know, especially in the building trades, right? Like I, I know a lot of these locals can be conservative or they can be, you know, unfriendly or they can not even organize at all. And that's like probably a whole other discussion, but, you know, I think that, DSA, you know, can vary, uh, I wouldn't say easily, but it, it usually is pretty clear of what locals around you you'd want to work with or could work with. Yeah. And I think that DSA can facilitate organizing on its own. Like a lot of people, I think, have the wrong impression that you have to have like an already established union to start organizing. And that's not right. true. I mean, any, any worker can start organizing. If you organize your workplace, you can partner with any union you want or none at all. Um, mm-hmm. I think DSA needs to operate of kind of like, you know, 
uh, if you build it, they will come kind of motto. Right, um, exactly. If we start organizing, we'll see which unions want to work with us in good faith, and then we should partner with them if we can. Um, and if not, we should just, you know, keep organizing. Yeah. And, and yeah, don't, don't sort of like write them off and keep the door open in a certain sense. There yeah, exactly. Re- I, mean, I don't think it, I don't think it's productive to just kind of like, you know, unilaterally write off like, a, you know, like to the teacher's union or whatever <laughs> as being just like, well, we, you know, there, it's a done deal. There's no, there's no point. Yeah. I don't think that's the case. They're just a bunch of bureaucrats and they'll never deal with us or whatever, you know, like that, that, yeah, that I mean, attitude even, really you know, bugs me. Like my, my family were all members of the operating engineers. They're, uh-huh. um, you know, kind of stereotyped as being one of the, one of the most conservative of the building trade unions. But there's some uh, IUOE locals who, you know, are just as left as DSA. And there's some that are, you know, not. Um, oh. But, you know, pe- people mistake, I think, national politics for local politics. And that's rarely the case. Yeah. And, you know, there was a really good example uh, that I saw of a partnership in in Chicago. And, like, people like to fetch Chicago Teachers Union for being such a, a really good union because it is one. Uh, however, yeah. like, like I, I, it did get to make it up to the uh, to the to the strike in, in October last year. And like having like seeing DSA essentially be a part of organizing and turning out people for uh, either pickets or protests in different you know different parts of that uh, that that effort, and also organizing that little bread for ed program that they had where we would pack lunches for for kids. I mean, I thought that was nothing but nothing but good it, it, in terms of building a relationship with. Um, actually, it was it, it took place in the UE hall when I was up there, yeah, um, which was fun. Uh, but it, it just, it was really interesting to see like when the connections are being made, how well it can click. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, I think like solidarity projects are a great way for like newer DSA, um, like, like newer DSA chapters to kind of like ingratiate themselves and to like get familiar with kind of the terrain. Um, I would like to see, uh, DSA chapters go further. I think I like, I would like to see DSA do direct organizing among their members now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, um, DSA is something like what 75,000 members, you know, even in a, even in a place with very few, um, like established unions, like I would, you know, stereotype and say probably the U S South, um, there are any number of opportunities for DSA chapters to kind of map out where their members work, um, you know, what industries they work in, form organizing committees at the local level. Mm-hmm. And then that's a great way to network and to, and to kind of bring in the working class into DSA. Mm-hmm. And I've always like kind of maintained that the more DSA takes the lead in organizing, the more people will see DSA as a resource to organize. Yeah, they'll look and serious. So it, like DSA will look serious. And that's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, and not just in like, not just in the electoral sense where I think people are increasingly taking us more seriously but Mm -hmm. in a labor sense and i think that even the most conservative uh labor union um they can't really fight reality and if dsa is out there organizing um they either have to kind of like you know shit or get off the pot and Mm -hmm. if they don't want to engage with that that's (laughs) fine but people will you know it's going to be obvious and Mm -hmm. i think that it's easy for them to dismiss us right now when in a lot of places, we're not doing like kind of independent organizing. But if we are, they have to kind of engage with us at some point. And it puts way more pressure on them um, than kind of the inverse, I think. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned earlier the mapping out like like DSA membership. I've been talking about that for a very long time. And I think that's a really great idea and it's a direction that we should go in. Um, but also, I think one of the things that could sort of happen is um, just just equipping like union members who are in DSA 
with the with the sort of tools to sort of like navigate through like some of the stuff that's happening in their union, you know, like it, like like yeah. like some basic stuff. Um, which I mean, like maybe people need it, maybe people won't, but having that resource available, some some people definitely will need that stuff, and like not even in the sense of like rank and file organizing or whatever, just under like 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 getting people to like navigate through the structures and the the the, the interfaces interface with rather the sort of like the arms of their own union which they are a part of you know yeah i mean i think like for a long time i think like labor notes was like kind of the only source for a lot of like like political education and like basic organizer training but there's no reason the dsa can't structure themselves to provide a lot of that too and i think mm-hmm. like i think it makes sense i think like you know as socialists you know for the most part we all believe that like the the most basic like place of organizing starts in the work site right. so i think you know it's behooves us all to kind of like really think about how we can like make make DSA chapters like a resource for basically all things uh, labor. And like, that's just, you know, it goes from, you know, kind of like you said, like actually like trying to organize like a new, you know, a new unit, a new bargain unit down to like just basic stuff of like how to navigate the union you're already in, mm-hmm. like how to, how to like, um, you know, like how to do politics, right? Like how to like, you know, organize your other, your coworkers, like towards like a, a political project, anything like that. I mean, DSA has got to like think about these things holistically and like really build out the infrastructure to do it. Yeah. And how to get people like how to keep people who are organizing their own project, their own, you know, you know, union drive, how to get them in contact with unions, how to like find an organizer and get with them or, or, or fill some of that space when it's not possible to even be done. You know, like this is something that can really be, uh, sort of a synergistic energy that's happening, I find. Yeah, and something that I, I think it was DSA LA is doing this, and it it it's almost like kind of similar to like the the model that we use in the construction industry, mm-hmm. where they're basically kind of mapping out their members. Um, they're building almost like like industry wide committees, and then they're kind of challenging those committees to invite their non union or sorry non DSA coworkers to them. So you're basically creating a space where you're organizing on the on the industrial level. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a mix of DSA and non-DSA people there. Um, and that's a great way to think of it. Because, you know, we do that in the construction world quite a bit, um, where we will form, like, um, basically, like, committees by trade, where, you know, like, for the painters union, we would have, like, a, a worker committee for glazers and painters and drywall workers, et cetera. Because the, the theory really is that, you know, if you're all working in the same industry, you probably know the best ways to to navigate those industries, what's important, what you should be organizing around. And then the DS and then DSA hopefully is bringing kind of the political angle over that too, that can impart some like basic organizing, like tools and basic political ideas to those committees. So it's like, to me, it's like a perfect merger of kind of the nuance you need to organize at work um, combined with kind of the political and like, you know, base level organizing experience that the DSA, you know, could be providing. Yeah. And, and there's like so many possibilities, like, um, we've talked about this and a little bit in terms of sort of like having even like, like parts of, um, parts of like a campaign, like every campaign that DSA potentially could have, could have almost like a, a labor component of it, where this is how you get, you know, your organized contingent 
involved and in, in, you know your your organized labor contingent or your unorganized and and how people can can sort of like advocate for these things in their workplace no matter if it's union or not union you know uh it's really something that uh i think could be very powerful in terms of get, like pushing for things like medicare for all and pushing for things like uh um like what like whatever you know the next you know bernie like if aoc runs for president or whatever or or local electoral stuff or or whatever it is just just finding ways to creating a space to talk with um like like or provi providing a space and providing support for people to talk about these things with people at their workplace yeah i, mean, I think one of the things i thought was really cool about the sanders campaign was they did they did do that a bit like in Iowa where they were pushing to have like caucus sites at workplaces. Mm -hmm. um, I know the culinary union in Las Vegas does this quite a bit where they will basically wield their political power to get like, um, you know, union halls or workplaces as like voting spots, um, stuff like that. Like I think DSA really needs to think of um, labor organizing as like the, the basic foundation of everything that we do. Yeah. Um, you know, cause as socialists, like I said before, that is kind of like the, you know, the, you know the 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 base level of like the political arena is at the workplace and that's where the most pressure can be exerted so if we don't think of labor organizing as like kind of intrinsic to every campaign that we do um it's gonna be a problem and i think for a long time it was seen as separate like you had like healthcare, you had labor you had environment yeah when like you know particularly in the building trades like let me tell you like all all of those are incredibly politicized like at the workplace particularly and if you don't want to figure out how to like reconcile those then you're, you're never going to be able to build like the kind of coalitions you would need for something like the green new deal that's exactly right and like these basically said it right before i was it but I, I, I keep telling people you are not going to get a green new deal without getting the building trades involved without the, getting them to buy into what you're doing because if you're going to be trying to kill their 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 workers you know entire livelihoods and you don't have it, it, it reminds me of that um and you know maybe this was done i'm gonna engage with it in as good faith as possible but when like the aflcio uh nationally they had a, a, a something that came out that essentially said well this is how, why we're we're not for a green new deal which is because it's going to cost workers x y and z and you say that there's a uh uh, there's a just transition of jobs. That's cool. That's not articulated in any way. There's no. Way, there's not enough to sink our teeth into. So even if you're, um, even if like there are, even if you assume that they're acting in bad faith, you're giving them a reason to to back off from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think like kind of two ways. Like first of all, right now, there's not a whole lot of engagement. And I'm, you know, I'll speak from the building trades perspective. Mm -hmm. This is probably the one I'm most familiar with. There's not a whole lot of engagement between. Um, the labor movement and the environmental movement. And they're never, right. I mean, people who are way smarter than me have written about this, um, but there, there's always been a disconnect there for better or for worse, right? So the only people who speak to um, the average rank and file building trades member about this stuff are the largely, um, I would say conservative or, not even, it's not really conservative. I mean, there's kind of this like shell shock among the labor movement where they look at the mine workers and they see a union who have basically been promised now for decades about all these just transitions that they would see because their their industry basically like dried up out from under them. Yep. Um, they see that and they they don't believe that. And like frankly, how do you blame them? Right? Like, no, look how paralyzed. They, why would they trust is. the politicians? Like, why would they trust the politicians that have screwed them over in the past? Right? Yeah, I mean, you're like realistically right now, you would you would not you would not see a just transition, just like you wouldn't see a green new deal. So what would happen would be, you know. 
And I think a lot of people don't realize this also is that in the building trade, some of the best paying and most stable work is in primarily dirty industries. Mm-hmm. Um, like some of our members, for example, do a lot of like um, almost like corrosion prevention on a lot of uh, oil and gas, you know, plants and refineries and pipelines and all that kind of stuff. Right now, none of that is good for the environment, but for a lot of these people, it's a stable nearly year round um, work for them that has provided for their family. And so we, justifiably you can see why they might be a little skeptical when you're saying that they needs to go now let me be clear i do think that needs to go and i do think that these industries have to be like phased out like quickly right um but the skepticism is real and because they do look at the mine workers and they do see what happens when kind of they're pandered to but nothing actually happens yeah so that's kind of like the environment that that like these workers are hearing and the only people who talk to them about this stuff are the heads of their unions primarily and and their elected leaders who for the most part also feel alienated from um, the environmental movement because for a long time they haven't really been brought in as like an equal uh, partner in, in that work. Um, So I think a lot of it is talking past each other or feeling not included. And so you have a lot of people who for better or for worse, assume the the worst possible um, intent of the other party. And so there needs to be some kind of like real like coming together between the environmental movement and workers. Um, because like I said, there's kind of this void where there, there's no kind of alternative narrative being given to them. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and, and, you know, unfortunately, well, I mean, I don't even want to, it's just the reality, right? Um, there, like, there is a certain amount of uh, people who are in the sort of like climate movement you know, for better or for worse, they're they're not from or they're or they're not in the position where they would have a union or that they would even like need one. They would often sometimes come from a little bit of a more wealthy background and, and they might not even have like encountered unions in their lives. So they don't really understand the functioning and how they how they operate. Which yeah, is- I mean, there's long been tensions. This goes back to like the hard hat rise, right, mm-hmm. between like the building trades and what they see is like kind of like the privileged realm of like of the protest movements. Right. I mean, a lot of it, I think again, is, is like kind of manufactured and oh, yeah. is like people playing to stereotypes. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there has been kind of like, like, I think that for better, or for worse, they've been almost dr- like the workers in both movements, right. In the climate movement and in the like construction industry have been driven to, to being seen as like opposite of each other. When in reality they have every like, every possible reason to collaborate and to, and to, to join together. I mean, mm-hmm. I think of like, like the green new deal, right. Part of the, part of um, like a proposal of the green new deal, a green new deal that I've heard would be retrofitting every single like commercial and residential building in the country with um, more efficient, like water systems mm-hmm. like that alone would, would probably double the size of the plumbers union. And yet the UA is probably one of the most vehemently, anti-Green New Deal unions in the country. It makes no sense. The, you know, part of the, the plan itself is, is literally calling for something that would be revolutionary for the plumbers union. And yet they still have this um, almost like knee-jerk reaction to it. And I think a lot of that, like I said, is because they don't trust the intent of the other party. And it's unfortunate, but I think it's not like a done deal. And I think a lot of it is like a generational gap and is just kind of an absence of, of like politics. Yeah, and and like yeah, that, I really appreciate the way you put that because like 
the, the some of the ways that people are like and I don't want to like name anybody in particular uh, however like there is a sort of framing that you're seeing that sort of kind of has it as the building trades or uh, sort of like standing in the way between the Green New Deal, which might be true, but like it's, it's not standing in the way because they're like against protecting the planet or whatever. They're, 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 they're unions are, the unions are doing what they're supposed to do, at least on the front end, which is representing their members in the best way that they know how. And like, yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's just a sentiment of like the, you know, the leaders of the unions, but it's probably reflective. I mean, yeah. Yeah, like I mean, I, I I think like um, a lot of these unions, like like I said, they, they just it's almost like a knee jerk reaction, and, and they're the the way it comes off a lot of times is that um, you know the, the the millions of construction workers in this country should give up the jobs they currently have <laughs> for kind of a wink at maybe future work, and right. it's it's a tough sell when you've kind of grown up through a political climate that included like, you know, Reagan in the eighties and kind of the neoliberal nineties and two thousands to be like, well, you know, we should disavow the work that we're currently getting that, that is typically the highest paying work because while we know like it might be bad for the environment, um, all we're getting in return is like a promise that, well, maybe more work might come from a green new deal. And that's not enough. I mean, yeah. The challenge you know. is to make it real. Like they want to see like what the plan is. They want to see the contracts drawn out, and they want to see it happening. And that's not even going to happen until like they, they want it to be a part of the conditions. Like like that they want it to be. I mean, this is my you know divining a little bit, but sort of like I, this is the way I would understand it. They want it to be pretty concrete if they're going to sign on to it. They don't want to sign on yeah. to uh, something that's that that could potentially just not materialize. Yeah, and I think we're all living under an environment where the labor movement has been on the defensive now for generously, let's our say, entire 40 lives. Years. Yeah, um, you're younger than me, probably. It's been our entire lives plus like ten years. Yeah, I mean, generally, let's say forty years, right? We've all been on the on the defensive. We've all been trying to basically hold on to what we have. It is an extremely tough sell to anyone to basically be asked to like publicly publicly come out and campaign against the very work that is sustaining your industry. Um, and you know, that's for better. I'm not, I'm certainly not trying to apologize for the fossil fuel industry here, <laughs> right? Um, of course. but for the, for the average worker, like it's, it's on a personal level, you know, this could be like the difference between like, you know, a career or not having a career. Mm-hmm. And it's like I said, I always go back to the mine workers where, you know, that's what everyone thinks of now when they think of kind of like, um, that transition. Um, and so the, the task I think ahead for, you know, socialists and, and, and people in the environmental movement is to to work with the building trades and work with, you know, workers in the building trades on kind of building out that vision that includes them and that, that they are sitting at the table from the get-go and they are sitting at the table and getting to be seen as an equal partner because for a long time they haven't been seen that way. And a lot of the mistrust, I think, comes from almost like, per, you know, that feeling of exclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And like, like this, the the only way that this is going to get solved, like you just said, is through building relationships and and building trust and building like these actual um, things. And one of the groups and are that are doing some of that work, I suppose, is the Sunrise Movement. Now, you and I have talked a little bit about some of the some of their practices with with their own workers, but they've they've engaged with uh, workers. What do you think about uh, about that 
that organization in terms of of actually being a part of bridging that divide? Is is it an opportunity? Is it limit, is it too limited? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, like I, I'm not gonna I'm not an expert on the Sunrise Movement. I what I do know is that um, you know they've done some like pretty like bold like direct action, um, you know, towards the kind of like both Democrats and Republicans, which I think that is like needed. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, some of the stuff with them kind of like busting their own staff union, that's unfortunate that, that, that stuff like that, like, and again, I don't know the nuances there, but stuff like that plays into every kind of like fear that the average like union person is going to, is going to read, who is going to read into, right. They're going to see that as like, okay, of course, it's another kind of hypocritical uh, progressive organization that, you know, do as I say, but not as I do. Right. Um, so that's not helpful. Right. And in a generous interpretation. <laughs> right. Um, I, I was just so like, what the hell are you doing when that happened? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just incredibly tone deaf is, yeah. is, you know, my kind of armchair analysis there. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that like, there are, there are some climate, movements and climate organizations that have done really interesting work. Like I know in New York, they've had some like, like blue green Alliance stuff that is like been coalitions of like Teamsters and SEIU and then a bunch of like climate groups and other groups um, that kind of sit down and work on legislation together. You know, that's good too. I think there needs to be a, a more like to me, like DSA seems like a better venue to pursue um like kind of a, a true blue green alliance, I think, because we are a membership organization that mm. is more, I think, a little more holistic than something like Sunrise Movement. Yeah, but I think certainly they're they're bold, and I think that um, you know they've been kind of pushing the envelope, and then they've really like kind of forced the conversation. And I think that the one thing we can't let happen is for it kind of to fade into the background. So it's certainly been like productive. Yeah, a hundred percent. And yeah, again, this is something that in terms of like a broad coalition is absolutely like, like that's one of the first groups that you would want to talk to after the, after the, you know, unions that are, that you're already have potentially members of in your, you know, DSA labor committee or whatever. Yeah. And I think kind of like what we were saying before with like organizing in general, I mean, I think that, it's a tough sell to win. Like, you know, from what I know from some of the heads of these major unions, they are personally opposed to um, like a lot of progressive politics, right? That is what it is. But I think a more productive route is for at the local level to organize um, among building trades workers, among, it's not just building trades workers too. There's a lot of other like, you know, unions like AFSCME and public service workers and, um, you know, like Teamsters, all, all of this stuff plays a part, like smart plays a part. I mean, they do a lot of the rail work in the country. Um, Shout out to Mike all Russell. these unions. Like, yeah, they, they really play a part. You got to like organize among the members, organize at the local levels, build coalitions of local unions and endorse this stuff, bring them into, to, you know, to, to DSA, to, to the broader movement. And that's how you're really going to create change. I think that, you know, most people on the left understand that change comes from like, you know, like the bottom up, like workers organizing together. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of times we forget that in the climate movement, cause it's, you know, legislation is direly needed, right? Like we direly need change in like, you know, in a, in a very like urgent way, like now really, mm-hmm. uh, but you also can't abandon that principle that it does come from the bottom up. And I think we really build that fire um, at the local level. It's going to force these international unions to, to come along. Yeah. 
Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining us on the show. Uh, you're welcome to come back anytime, uh, and uh, really appreciate talking to you. Anything else you wanted to talk about? Just sort of like in the last couple of minutes. I know you got to you got to get going, but uh, I know maybe something you see as a potential opportunity that we haven't talked about. Uh, no, I mean the only thing I can think of is like you know I, I think stuff like um, like Ewok is an opportunity. It, you know, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. Um, but I think that like it's helpful seeing DSA and then there's other DSA projects too. Like, like the, uh, the restaurant organizing project is another one that I think has every bit of potential in the world. Um, some of DSA's other campaigns, like the, the save USPS campaign, oh, yeah. uh, which is more of like a solidarity campaign, but that's all really important stuff. And I think, you know, a lot of DSA members are not super familiar with labor organizing, but we're kind of like, uh, doing a trial by fire thing here. There's so many, I think fires to put out at once. Yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, my hope is that, we're building a lot of institutional knowledge. And so as DSA grows in members, we're also growing a lot of people who are learning how to organize by doing it, which to me is like the really the only way you can learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Ryan. Uh, appreciate you. Appreciate it. Uh, check out Ryan's piece in the organizer. Uh, it is called good organizing, make strong unions. It's brief, um, but it really does give a lot of really great context. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Buddy. Yeah. Happy to be there anytime. Yeah, and uh, you can listen to Good Morning Comrade every Tuesday on WHIVFM. You can also check us out on Thursdays online at goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, thanks for everybody for listening. Uh, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash goodmorningcomrade. Uh, thanks. Love you. Bye. All right, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was great. Anytime. It was fun. I'd love to come back and, you know, yeah, shoot the shit about anything. Hell yeah. I mean, if you ever 